From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, regional reaction as conflict breaks out in the Middle East. In sports, an all-time great remembered and the WNBA finals begin. A new novel about the ambition and limitations of science. And Keegan-Michael and L. Key and their history of sketch comedy, from the Sumerians to Second City, Key and Peele and SNL, and the history of what we'll call intestinal digestive humor. What would have been funny to the Neanderthals and to cavemen in general? Probably pretty much the same thing, somebody falling down or slipping on a banana peel, Mm -hmm. if they had bananas. And always our theme music by B.J. Lederman. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, October 7, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Israel says it's at war after a surprise attack by Gaza militants who've infiltrated Israeli communities and launched thousands of rockets onto Israel. An Israeli emergency services official told NPR at least 22 Israelis have been killed. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. This is an unprecedented kind of attack taking Israel by surprise. The Israeli military says militants infiltrated Israel on paragliders through the Mediterranean Sea and over land, with heavily armed militants driving past Israel's fortified border. Fighting has continued for hours. Israel says Palestinian gunmen stormed two military camps and at least five Israeli residential communities, including the town of Sderot, where Israeli public broadcasting reported about 10 bodies on the ground. Hamas published videos from inside military camps appearing to show Israeli soldiers killed and being taken captive alive, and Hamas claims it has taken Israelis hostage inside Gaza. Rocket fire continues with air raid sirens in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The strike against the big three Detroit automakers has entered its fourth week. The United Auto Workers Union decided not to expand the strike yesterday after reporting progress in talks with General Motors. UAW President Sean Fain called this a major breakthrough that has dramatically changed negotiations. We were about to shut down GM's largest moneymaker in Arlington, Texas. The company knew those members were ready to walk immediately. And just that threat has provided a transformative win. GM has now agreed in writing to place their electric battery manufacturing under our national master agreement. Healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente are expected back at work this morning after a three-day strike. They want facilities to pay more and to take steps to address staffing shortages. It was another roller coaster week in the stock market, capped off by a better-than-expected jobs report on Friday. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow ended down for the week, but other stock indexes finished higher. All week, investors kept a wary eye on the job market. The Labor Department said Friday that employers added 336,000 jobs in September, about twice as many as forecasters had expected. Stocks initially fell on fears that all those new jobs might add to inflation and force the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates again. Those worries faded, though, as investors digested the details of the report, which showed that wages are rising only modestly and not likely to put more upward pressure on prices. Mortgage giant Freddie Mac says the average rate on a 30-year home loan is now close to 7.5%. That's the highest it's been in nearly 23 years. Scott Horsley, Impair News, Washington. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. President Biden will send a team from the Department of Homeland Security to Massachusetts to assess the migrant situation here. The Biden administration has been facing increased pressure from members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation to visit the state to see the unsustainability. The Boston Globe reports that the federal team will look for ways to improve efficiencies and maximize support for communities taking in migrants. A rheumatologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital has left his job after being accused of giving inappropriate breast and pelvic exams. Derek Todd also has voluntarily surrendered his medical license. Brigham and Women says the hospital has been investigating Todd since April and decided to terminate him, and he resigned as a result. The hospital says it's offering support for patients affected by Todd's behavior. Apple picking season is in full swing in Massachusetts this holiday weekend, although some orchards got wiped out or lost apple crops this year because of the extreme frost and flooding. Honeypot Hill Orchards in Stowe is open for business. General Manager Chelsea Martin says they survived this season despite the unpredictable weather. She attributes this both to luck and to techniques to counter the excessive frost. We were up All night, uh, we lit fires and we have wind machines, which help draw warm air down from the upper atmosphere to keep the cold air from settling in pockets. Martin says the wet weather means the apples this year will be bigger and a little more fleshy. The annual Boston 10K for Women kicks off this hour. The race starts on Beacon Street by the Public Garden in Boston. Nearly 4,000 women are expected to run. It's billed as New England's largest all-woman sporting event. It is 64 degrees in Boston with some showers likely today and highs reaching the upper 60s. Tonight, some showers likely and lows dropping to the low 50s. For your Sunday and your holiday Monday, sunshine and highs both days in the low 60s. Looking ahead to Tuesday, cloudy skies, a chance of some showers and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has declared that his country is at war. In an early morning attack, Palestinian militants infiltrated Israel's border using paragliders. Heavily armed militants drove past Israel's fortified border with the Gaza Strip. There are reports of kidnapped Israeli soldiers and civilians. Nearly two dozen Israelis have been killed. And the violence has put the entire region on high alert. NPR's Aya Betrawi joins us from Dubai. Aya, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, how are governments in the region responding? Basically, cautiously. We haven't seen immediate statements from heavyweights like the United Arab Emirates, which has close ties now with Israel. But we have seen Saudi Arabia quickly issue a statement just now saying they're closely following these developments. They're calling it unprecedented. They're calling for an immediate halt to the escalation and the protection of civilians and saying that, you know, look, the Saudi Arabia is reminding everyone that they have been given repeated warnings of the dangers that the situation is explosive. Egypt, which borders Gaza and has had a longstanding 
role as a mediator in these conflicts, says its foreign minister has already been working the phones to bring an end to the escalation, but that might be in vain given the gravity of the situation and the current Israeli government that would be expected to respond pretty fast and hard to this. And we've also seen no response immediately from Iran, but the Iranian-backed Lebanese Hezbollah group um, congratulated the Palestinians for their, quote, heroic factions there for this operation. And the Turkish president, Tayyip Erdogan, called for restraint from all parties. So, yeah, there's been a cautious approach so far, I think, in a lot of the statements. Aya, how do you uh, imagine the stunning images uh, from this morning and Israel's response are going to be received in the region? I mean, this is major news. I mean, all the Arabic satellite channels are carrying these just insane, stunning images out of Israel. A lot of these are, are social media videos. We don't know how many of these are real but or have been verified. But, you know, every time a war breaks out between Israel and Gaza, the images are horrifying here in the region. You know, and look, Hamas is saying that this is in response to thousands of extremist settlers violating the sanctity of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the most the holiest sites for Muslims and for Jews. Um, but uh, we also saw in Ramadan, you know, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque worshippers inside being beaten. And so it's been a very sensitive year. It's been a very unsettling time. And we've seen raids in the West Bank and close to 250 Palestinians killed this year by Israeli forces. So emotions on the street have been high and any conflict could just make that even, you know, more. Hey, what does another war mean? for Israel's new allies in the region like the UAE and, and for that matter, the Biden administration's efforts to put together some kind of deal that would see Saudi Arabia establish ties with Israel. Well, we talked about popular sentiment, but politically, among the political leadership in the region, particularly the Gulf and Egypt, Hamas is not popular. The UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, they see the, uh, Hamas as an Islamist offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood group, and they see it as, as, a, as a faction and entity that is backed by Iran. So I think statements will be cautious. But the reality is Saudi Arabia has a much bigger agenda with uh, normalizing ties with Israel that goes far beyond anything um, that could just be another cycle. You know, unfortunately, these, these wars do happen every two to three years. And it's become almost inevitable. And I think even the Saudi statement said, like, this is a result of the continued occupation. And, you know, they're calling for a credible peace process that can lead to a two-state solution. Um, so I don't think this will derail the talks, but it certainly complicates an already very difficult negotiation. And Pierzea Betraoui in Dubai. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. The three-day walkout of Kaiser Permanente health employees has ended. It included 75,000, mainly support staff across five states and Washington, D.C. About 80% of the workers were in California. Jackie Fortier with LAist has more. Semi-trucks and cars honked their horns in solidarity at hundreds of striking Kaiser Permanente health workers in front of a hospital in L.A. County. Union member Sophia Calhoun has worked in member services for Kaiser Permanente for 29 years. I don't think it's so much that we want more money, we deserve more money. We work hard, we work understaffed, and we deserve to be getting paid for it. Instead, we're getting things taken away from us. She said short staffing has led to longer wait times and fewer people like her to answer questions. That annoys patients. People are longer on hold not enough staff to service them with anything that they may need. May it be in the laboratory, the pharmacy, appointments for the doctor's office, time turnaround from the messages they may have left, all types of things. 
Kaiser Permanente has an outsized footprint in California. It dominates half the insurance marketplace in the state and operates three dozen hospitals and hundreds of medical offices. So it's also California's largest healthcare provider. After decades with the healthcare giant, Calhoun doesn't feel like she can go to a different employer. I'm invested. I don't know of anyone who's been on a job almost 30 years that can just pick up and walk away and when you're at a certain age as well. 30-year-old Marco Del Rosario was also on the picket line. He's a former Marine and he's worked at this Kaiser Permanente hospital for two years as a physical therapy aide. He says the hospital needs at least three physical therapy aides, but he's the only one. That means he's often called in for literal heavy lifting when patients are so debilitated, it takes more than one person to move them. That takes a toll on somebody's physical body. So I'm lifting these patients up every day because I can't see single patients by myself. I don't have that license to do so. He's studying to be a physician assistant, but already feels burned out. I felt it already and I'm not even at my career yet. To keep workers like Del Rosario, union leaders say the minimum pay needs to be bumped up to $25 an hour company-wide. Kaiser executives proposed a $21 minimum in most states and $23 in California. This strike is over, but the issues the unions raised are far from settled. The federal government limits how long strikes can last in the healthcare industry. But if in-person talks next week fail, union leaders say another strike is on the table. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Women leaders in the Roman Catholic Church and how to be more welcoming of LGBTQ and divorced Catholics are topics of conversation at the Vatican right now. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports that during a nearly month-long meeting, clergy and laity are considering a number of issues, including the possibility of women becoming Catholic deacons. For more than a dozen years, Jasmine Jimenez was a Catholic school teacher, a job that highlighted contradictions, like teaching her students that the church excludes women from the sacrament of ordination to the priesthood. We told them that we all have common dignity and a common mission, and then you fast forward to a course on sacraments, and we say, oh yeah, well, but not here. Jimenez is a member of American Martyrs Catholic Church in Manhattan Beach, California. For the last several years, the congregation has been holding listening sessions in preparation for this month's Vatican meeting. For me, it was a place where you could talk about exclusion and marginalization and pain that has been felt either personally by myself or by people that I know and love who are either in the church or who have left the church. What came out of those sessions was sent up to the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and then on to the Vatican. Jimenez says the conversations clarified something for her. If women were allowed to be deacons in the Catholic Church, absolutely, tomorrow I would seriously discern and consider becoming a deacon. It is a pain point for me that that is not something that I am able to discern at this time. Jimenez is traveling to Rome as an observer with the organization Discerning Deacons. The Vatican meeting, called a synod, includes nearly 500 participants talking and listening, and for the first time, about 10% are women. Which 
by Catholic standards, is a big improvement. <laughs> Massimo Fagioli is a professor of Catholic theology at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. He says Pope Francis broached the idea of women deacons early in his papacy. Which broke a taboo because for many people that issue had been solved forever by John Paul II and Pope Benedict who had zero interest. Deacons aren't priests and can't preside at communion or hear confessions, but they are official leaders who preach and teach and baptize, something Fagioli says women already do in many Catholic parishes. We allow you to do these things as long as you don't ask to be formally acknowledged. So many of us think that it's time to get rid of this hypocrisy. Sisters and brothers, the Lord be with you. St. Monica's Catholic community in Santa Monica is one of the largest congregations in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Our reading is from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Lloyd Torgerson has been pastor here for 35 years. He says the message from his congregation's listening sessions was clear. Make sure that there's room in the tent for everyone. They want to hear their pastors say that to them, that you're welcomed where you can come and find our Lord and find each other and find an honor and respect for each other. Torgerson says everyone includes divorced Catholics, as well as gays and lesbians who often feel excluded. Those concerns will also be part of the conversation in Rome. That very openness to dialogue set by Pope Francis has been revolutionary for Lupita Perez. In the before time, I'm, I need to be honest with you, I wasn't very much involved in my community, in my church, in my relationship with the church. She's a member of Our Lady of Guadalupe in San Diego. She's now a youth minister, also traveling to the Vatican Synod as an observer. Perez is hopeful but cautious. Some may be like listening, but are you really, really open to the change? Some may not be open to it. Being listened to but not heard, says Perez, would be heartbreaking. Jason DeRose, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us this Saturday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about half an hour, Keegan-Michael Key and Elkey discuss their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with Jazz Along the Charles. Here, 25 bands play one set list along the Esplanade today, free to all, jazzalongthecharles.com and Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI, announcing an AI event October 18th at Northeastern. Leading with AI responsibly explores innovative strategies companies like Google, Fidelity, and Intuit use to transform their business with AI. Tickets at ai.northeastern.edu. 65 degrees in Boston, showers today, and highs in the upper 60s. Some showers likely tonight, then tomorrow, sunshine, highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Gaza militants attacked Israel early this morning, launching thousands of rockets and infiltrating Israeli communities. Emergency officials say at least 40 Israelis have been killed. Hamas claimed Israelis have been taken hostage inside Gaza. The Egyptian foreign ministry is warning of grave consequences from the escalation in violence. 
The British Foreign Ministry and the European Union issued statements that they unequivocally condemned the attacks. And the U.S. Geological Survey reports two earthquakes shook northwestern Afghanistan today, including one with a magnitude of 6.3. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This week, NPR is dedicating an entire week to stories and conversations about the search for climate solutions. Many people reach out to hotlines in moments of crisis, but here's one you might not have heard of. Thank you for calling the National Heritage Responders Hotline. This hotline helps people figure out how to save important objects and buildings after disasters. As NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, it's a solution to preserve cultural heritage in the face of more frequent and severe weather brought on by climate change. When Anne Frelson walks through a library, archive, or museum, she pays attention to details most of the rest of us wouldn't notice. Oh, there's another sprinkler. Sprinkler systems, humidity meters, emergency response plans. These are the things national heritage responders like Frelson think about. She's based in Atlanta, Georgia, and right from the start of her career as a book and paper conservator in 1990, she found herself dealing with emergencies. My first disaster was about a month into my job. It was a water leak that destroyed dozens of library books. And it just continued from there. One of the things Frelson does these days is teach others in the heritage conservation field to do the same. Today, she's teaching a group of professional librarians, archivists and conservators the ins and outs of how to respond when disaster strikes a cultural site. Some of them might take the test to become National Heritage Responders, but right now they're at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in Boston, huddling around a tall glass case. What's this gown? This is... Uh... Rosemary Kennedy. Rosemary Kennedy, yeah. The ball gown worn by JFK's sister in 1938 is on display as part of a World War II exhibition. A famous wartime speech given by President Franklin D. Roosevelt plays on a loop in the gallery. That our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. Frelson and her co-trainers have cooked up an imaginary scenario. It's a few days after a blizzard. It triggered the museum's sprinkler system, which can happen in strong winds. And all that water has left behind soggy carpets, excess humidity, and a whole bunch of precious presidential artifacts in peril, including the ball gown. I would mitigate the high humidity in the space. That's Evan Knight. He's the preservation specialist with the state agency that supports libraries in Massachusetts. And if we deal with the overall humidity, then that should help at least arrest, you know, mold growth to some extent before a conservator can come in. 
But Annie Rubel, a historic preservation expert in Deerfield, Massachusetts, isn't keen on this idea. Well, I think that this is an extremely fragile piece. If there is no textile conservator on the way immediately, I would fashion some kind of support sling for this and very gently remove it from the area. Ultimately, they decide to remove the carpet from under the case and stabilise the environment in the case itself. The National Heritage Responders launched in 2006, but it was in the 1940s that the United States and Europe first started thinking seriously about how to recover culturally important artefacts and sites after a crisis. Countries formed a group to track down and protect cultural treasures in World War II. The 2014 movie The Monuments Men, starring George Clooney, captures the spirit of their work. They tell us who cares about art, but they're wrong. It is the exact reason that we're fighting for a culture, for a way of life. Since then, efforts around saving cultural heritage after disasters have evolved beyond historic buildings and celebrated works of art. For example, after floods devastated eastern Kentucky in 2022, National Heritage Responders helped salvage thousands of reel-to-reel tapes documenting Appalachian cultural traditions. They also recently ran online workshops on disaster recovery for people in Maui following this summer's wildfires. Anne Frelson again, she's the trainer for the National Heritage Responders. The community can't recover if they lose those cultural identities. Their cultural identity is often tied up in the objects and the spaces that they live with. An important part of the responders' mission is their 24-hour telephone hotline, where people can call to get help after disasters. The number of calls have mushroomed in recent years, around 70 so far this year, up from fewer than 10 in 2008 when the hotline first appeared. Climate change is increasing the frequency and the severity of the disasters that we're experiencing. It's just a constant battle. This is the sound of a special vacuum cleaner sucking up debris at the Casa del Libro Museum Library in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Executive Director Karen Canacruz posted a video of the shiny apparatus in action on social media. And I put it on Instagram and I said, this is our best friend right now. <laughs> Canacruz says she was urged to call the hotline by a fellow conservator in Texas after hurricanes Irma and Maria walloped Puerto Rico in 2017. Human-driven climate change was the engine behind both of those devastating hurricanes. We were, you know, desperate. Remember the imaginary scenario at the training in Boston with Rosemary Kennedy's ball gown? Cana Cruz says something similar happened here. In this case, strong winds caused the museum's power to go out. This meant no air conditioning, and the high humidity levels threatened the museum's world-class collection of 15th-century books with mould. We don't have a conservator in-house. We weren't prepared, so the assistance of the National Heritage Responder for us was very important, very appreciated. The volunteers came in to help with equipment, supplies and advice. Anne Frelson was among those deployed. She says figuring out how to reach the more than 20 institutions that needed assistance was challenging. There were no stoplights and there was no signs on the highways because they'd all blown away. And that's to say nothing of the on-the-job hazards. As hot and humid as it was, we were in full Tyvek suits the entire time because the mold situation was just unfathomable. At least there were treats. Frelson invented a disaster recovery cocktail. The ingredients? Fruit juice, boiled tap water, packets of emergency fizzy vitamin drink powder, and, naturally, Puerto Rican rum. A little bit more than might go in a normal cocktail. 
Anne Frelson says she's starting to age out of the extreme field work, but she's excited about the next generation that she's training, especially with human-caused climate change creating a lot more work. It's really comforting to know that there are a lot more people who can come in and replace us with a lot more stamina and energy than I, <laughs> I find I have. I would really love to be deployed. That's Annie Rubel, the preservation expert from Deerfield, Massachusetts, who attended the training in Boston. She says she hopes her background in building conservation will secure her a spot in the National Heritage Responders Network. That's an underrepresented skill set on the team, so I'm hoping that that comes up sooner rather than later. Rubel says the trainers told her they'd be in touch. Chloe Veltman, NPR News, Boston. Chloe Veltman's story is part of NPR's week dedicated to climate solutions. You can visit npr.org slash climate week for more stories of solutions. Are human beings so clever, or think we are, that we'll devise new and ingenious advances to achieve fabulous things and deliver our own destruction? That's a question at the heart of Benjamin Labatut's new novel, Drawn from History, The Maniac. And Benjamin Labatut, author of the previously acclaimed novel, When We Cease to Understand the World, joins us now from Milan. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Thank you so much for having me. You begin with a, a very tough and tragic episode from history. The Austrian physicist Paul Ehrenfest and his 15-year-old son, Vasily. Please tell us what happened in September 1933. And before you do, let's, let's please caution our listeners that you're going to hear about self-harm. Mm. Well, Paul Ehrenfest was a physicist. He had this role. He was regarded as a sort of Socrates of, of physics. But he was also very melancholy. He was also a man who suffered greatly from melancholia, from depression, and also because he felt that his science, which was so dear to him, physics was getting away from him. And his son was had Down syndrome, and he, and he had him he had him rescued basically from Germany because during the first wave of, of killings, but then he falls into deep despair, digging its way into science. And in the first paragraph of the book, I tell the real story of how he walked into a home where his boy was and shot him in the head and then killed himself. Yeah. And by the way, let us add, if, um, if you're troubled by thoughts of harming yourself, um, there is help available. You can call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. In your retelling, Paul Ehrenfast despaired not just of his life, but what he saw as coming to the world and whether or not there was a place for him and his son in it? Absolutely. He was complaining about how physical intuition and a sensuous relationship with the world was being replaced by a cold rationality. And many of his fears come alive in the central character of the book, which is John von Neumann. And there's even a letter where Paul Ehrenfest, a real letter, where he complains about the mathematical plague and the likes of von Neumann, who was a rising wunderkind of, of physics and mathematics and science. Van Neumann was sometimes called the smartest person in the world, wasn't he? Absolutely. I mean, he was compared to the greats of his age, like Fermi, and he would just blow them away. Even though many of his friends would say, well, we know that there's deeper thinkers, someone like Einstein, for example. To me, the central question, the most interesting one, again, was made by Wigner. He says, well, what can a mind like that see about the world? 
What are the things that he has to consider that we cannot even imagine? And I think that's particularly interesting now where we're beginning to create different intelligence from our own and then are going to open up doors that we haven't even considered are there yet. And that brings us to yet another character, Lee Sidol, who is still with us today, just 40, the greatest Go player in the world. Go, of course, is a strategy board game. Well, Lisa Dole, to me, the book begins with Paul, and Paul is a prophet. And then it goes into von Neumann, and von Neumann is a sort of alien intelligence. But it ends with a man who, during his entire life, sought a beauty that he suspected existed, but that he could not get at. So when he was confronted in the AI with what he had been looking for all his life, which is a new type of beauty, he found it terrifying. This is a software or a machine called AlphaGo that, well, I'll let you explain what it is. This is an AI program developed by DeepMind. Back in 2016, they chose to play against Lisa Dahl, not just because he was a world champion, but because he was a player who was famous for being highly creative, aggressive. And Go was considered, till that time, to be, you know, the, the utmost limit of creativity. There was no way that a machine or that any uh, learning algorithm could get at Go. So they chose that as a benchmark, and they developed this program who plays five games against Lisa Dole. And what happens during those five games to me is such a miracle. There are particularly two moves which have never been considered in the entire history of humanity and that show us something about the world that we're very quickly moving into. Well, help us understand that world based on, on which, in a sense, you've lived through in writing this novel. I mean, I don't know a nice way to say this. If, if the smartest people in the world can't look out for the future welfare of human beings, what will happen to us probably sooner than later? Well, we seem to be completely unable to imagine the future. Suddenly there's this blindness, this darkness. There's, we're suddenly faced with a mist that nobody can see beyond. And I find that to be both fascinating and absolutely terrifying. But the little wisdom that a book can give you is usually prospective or, or retrospective. The stories that I try to get at that the book, that's why I delve into things that happened in the 50s and, and in the 30s, is because these stories, in some sense, they're like currents that gather into a storm. So it's impossible sitting at the eye of the storm, and we are there right now. I found myself, as I, as I particularly got to the last hundred pages or so of your novel, assuaging myself with the idea that AI could not have written your novel. <laughs> That's incredibly kind of you. <laughs> for now, for now. But, but the truth is, we don't know what it can do, and we don't know what we can do with it. Benjamin Labatut's new novel, The Maniac. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so very much for inviting me. And a note, we will keep you updated throughout the day on the attack launched by Israel by Palestinian Hamas militants. We'll have those updates here and at NPR.org. You are listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
In Iran, reformists and pro-democracy advocates are celebrating the Nobel Peace Prize awarded to Nargis Hamadi. Forgive me, Nargis Mohammadi, the women's right activist who's serving a 10-year sentence in Iran's Evin prison for quote spreading anti-state propaganda. Those celebrating include her husband. NPR's NPR reached him in Paris, where he lives with the couple's children. And for more on this, we're joined by NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Peter. What did her husband have to say about his wife receiving this most notable prize? Well, when NPR reached Atraki Rahmani in Paris, he clearly thought the award was well-deserved. Uh, he also said he hopes it will advance the cause of women's rights and human rights in Iran. Here's a bit of what he said. Now he's saying, quote, this prize is the most important prize in human rights. When someone wins this prize, the focus of the international community turns to them. And the announcement of the Nobel Peace Prize began with the chant, Women, Life, Freedom. So in reality, the prize doesn't belong to Nargis, he said. This prize is for the movement, the efforts of Iranian women, and Nargis is one of those women. Now, in announcing the prize, the chairperson of the Nobel Committee mentioned the high price Nargis Mohammadi has paid for her advocacy. Uh, she's been arrested 13 times, convicted five times, sentenced to a total of 31 years in prison. Uh, her husband, Rahmani, has also served 14 years in prison, so he knows what his wife is going through. Does he seem to think this prize could increase pressure on the Iranian government to release his wife? Well, when he was asked that question, he chose to quote something his wife had said. Uh, here's what he said. He's saying, Nargis says, I hope my children will forgive me because I will fight for the freedom of other children. He goes on to say that he wants Nargis to be freed so they can live together as a family once again. Or is there any chance the government might consider doing that? It seems highly unlikely uh, this hardline regime would take that step. Uh, after last year's protests following the death of a young Kurdish-Iranian woman in police custody, we've seen a systematic crackdown on dissent. Activists, academics, and others have faced jail or other sanctions. Courts have handed out heavy sentences, even the death penalty for some protesters. Uh, a UN independent investigators report released Friday uh, says that as of the end of July, at least 537 people had died for protesting, uh, including 48 women and 68 children. The rights group Amnesty International has said the international community has to find a way to address what it calls, quote, the crisis of systematic impunity that has allowed widespread torture, extrajudicial executions, and other unlawful killings by Iranian authorities. Meanwhile, Peter, reports of another young woman who may have been attacked for improper attire. What can you tell us? Well, yes, 16-year-old Armida Garavand is reportedly in a coma now after an incident aboard a subway. CCTV footage shows her entering the subway car with her head scarved down around her shoulders. It's not clear exactly what happened inside the car, but she's next seen being dragged out, possibly unconscious. Uh, Nargis Mohammadi's husband addressed that case, too. Here's what he said. He says, why should an innocent 16-year-old girl be going through this? What sin has she committed? He says the real freedom is freedom for everyone. Of course, at the moment, that freedom seems to be a long way off. And Paris Peter Kenyon in Istanbul, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. In a surprise attack today, Hamas militants infiltrated Israeli territory from the Gaza Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel now is at war and he says Israel will win. The country's air force responded to the attack by striking Hamas targets in Gaza. Israel reports at least 40 Israelis have been killed. The top Palestinian health official in Gaza says dozens of Palestinians have been killed. Stay with WBUR for continuing coverage of this conflict. The former chief of clinical rheumatology at Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital has left his job after being accused of giving inappropriate breast and pelvic exams. Derek Todd also has surrendered his medical license. Brigham and Women says the hospital has been investigating Todd since April and decided to terminate him, and he resigned as a result. It's 65 degrees in Boston, some showers on the way, and highs today in the upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu together. And Associated Industries of Massachusetts, hosting a virtual discussion on DEI programs in the workplace. October 11th at 10. Register at aimnet.org. People across the U.S. are ditching traditional grass lawns, replacing them with wildflower patches, rock gardens, or other sustainable alternatives. We transform the front lawn, the backyard, and the side lawn into growing spaces. Grass lawns have long been an iconic symbol of American homes. Why that's changing and what it means for the environment. And all things considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It is a day of violence and fear in Israel. Palestinian Hamas militants launched a surprise attack beginning at 6.30 in the morning local time. The attack came from land and sea and from the sky with a barrage of rocket fire. Unprecedented in its scale, in the words of NPR's Daniel Estrin in Israel, Over 2,000 rockets were fired from Gaza into southern and central Israel. There are images of smoking buildings, burned-out cars, Israeli warplanes mobilizing and people running in search of shelter and safety. Citizens of Israel, we are at war, said Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a videotape in front of Israel's military headquarters. Mohammed Daif, a top Hamas militant commander, issued a statement calling for a regional war. He said the attacks were in response to Israeli, quote, desecration of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. It is a site also revered by Jews as the Temple Mount, which Jewish religious ultranationalists visited in recent days. We will have the very latest on the strikes in Israel at NPR.org and throughout this show today including reports from NPR correspondents Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv and Aya Batrawi in Dubai, 
on reaction from the region. And now it's time for sports. WNBA Finals, Red River Rivalry, and farewell to a football and Chicago legend. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Good morning, Scott. Oh, Dick Butkus. Left us at the age of 80. Yeah. Hall of Fame middle linebacker. Uh, number 51, seven all-time pro, the soul of <laughs> defense. You know, and so Chicago, uh, Chicago Vocational High School, sturdy as a skyscraper, fierce as the wind off the lake in December, wasn't he? All great adjectives, Scott, and you're a Chicago guy. You can't talk about Chicago Bears football without mentioning Dick Buckus. There are beloved athletes, of course, in this city, but boy, what a hometown story. Born and raised on the South Side, went to Illinois, played offense and defense when he first got there, drafted alongside Gail Sayers to the Chicago yep. Bears, and became the standard for what it meant to play linebacker in the NFL. And, you know, his calling card was dominating and you might say demoralizing his opponents. Uh, Bears wide receiver Johnny Mathis once famously said, I was afraid of Dick Buckus and he was on my team. Now, of course, Buck has played before concussion protocols and cameras everywhere on the sideline. He got away with a lot more, but he defined what it meant to be a Chicago Bears linebacker. Tough guy, going to be missed, transcendent player. Yeah. WNBA finals begin tomorrow. The New York Liberty face the defending champion Las Vegas Aces. No team has won the title back-to-back since 2002. What do you foresee? Well, you know, this was a matchup the entire league was waiting for since the offseason because that's when these super teams were assembled. Uh, the closest score differential between these two teams in the regular season was nine points, but we expect the finals to be a lot more competitive than that. And the matchup to watch here is the Aces' Asia Wilson, last year's MVP against this year's MVP, the Liberty's Brianna Stewart. You know, we can debate the merits of Super Team Scott, but it's been a real good thing for the WNBA, and fans can really catch on quick to the storylines with all these big stars, and the best-of-five series tips off tomorrow night. Should be exciting. Finally, uh, in college football, the Red River rivalry, the undefeated Oklahoma Sooners face the undefeated Texas mm. Longhorns, Cotton Bowl in, in Dallas. The last time these two teams play each other before they leave the Big 12 Conference next year for the SEC... We, I mean, how could they not keep play, playing each other? But this is kind of the end of an era, isn't it? Yeah, especially for college football, which is about so much tradition and history. And, and Texas and Oklahoma are leaving the Big 12 after this season. They're chasing a bigger spotlight and, of course, more money in the SEC. But if you ask me, this was the marquee rivalry in the Big 12. Yeah. And now it's just going to be one of the big rivalry games in the SEC. And it's a fun one. They have it at the Texas State Fair. It's every year on the second Saturday of October. They've been doing this since 1900. And what's great about playing in the Cotton Bowl is that they're equidistant between Norman, Oklahoma and Austin, Texas. So the stadium is about 50-50 between OU and Texas. There's somebody screaming on just about every play. And if you love college football, you'll be watching these two undefeateds. Think about it. 
Uh, Texas has given up two, six touchdowns this season, I believe. OU, just five. So, Scott, these teams can play defense, and they put up points as well. And whoever wins will keep their, keep their college playoff hopes very much alive. So I'm really looking forward to this one. And if you like food, lots of fried stuff at the Texas State <laughs> Fair, I understand. Ooh, yeah, that'll make you ready for the game, <laughs> Michelle Steele. Fried that... Oreos and all that. Oh, thanks so much, Michelle. <laughs> There's no recipe for sketch comedy. There might be a few shared ingredients. Take characters contending with contemporary credos or circumstances. Plop in an unexpected, even outrageous element like calling bring out your dead and monty python and the holy grail bring out your dead here's one <laughs> no infants i'm not dead what nothing here's your infants i'm not dead yeah he says he's not dead yes he is i'm not jack benny's reply to your money or your life look bud i said your money or your life i'm thinking it over the campfire indigestion scene in blazing saddles laugh, scream, then scene. Keegan-Michael Key, the award-winning actor, writer, and producer, and L. Key, the award-winning film, television, commercial, and theater director, have produced a new book, The History of Sketch Comedy. We spoke with them earlier this week and started uh, at the beginning. We actually start the book with a lot of supposition about what would have been funny to the Neanderthals and to cavemen in general. Probably pretty much the same thing, somebody falling down or slipping on a banana peel mm-hmm. if, they, if they had bananas. Yeah, if they had bananas back then. Or running away from a saber-toothed tiger, you know, like and you stubbing do. your toe. Like you do. What role did the court jester play, do you think, in the development of sketch comedy? Was just the whole idea of ribbing power to its faces? Yeah, I think that that's actually a, a, a real good way of putting it, Scott. Yeah, is that the social element or the social political element of pushing the envelope seems to, I'm not sure if it started with the jester, but the, the court jester certainly was one of the practitioners of it. You know, I mean, the only difference is that job security is, is uh, paramount when you're a jester because uh, if <laughs> you lose... Right. You no, lose. it's a comedy central roast master general is concerned about his life or safety, I think. One of the best lines ever, Jack Benny's response to your money or your life. I guess I didn't know until reading this scholarly history. It was the product of a feud. Yes, of a, of a, of a made-up feud between him and his contemporary Fred Allen. It was Fred Allen who attributed him with this miserliness. And, and, and Jack Benny then just really leaned into it. I mean, really leaned into it's it. The, that's the story that, that we have read and tracked down. So we like to believe that that's the truth. And, yes. and it's super fun. But we had a chance to talk to both Matt Damon and Jimmy Kimmel about their current feud, which if people don't know, it's a really, really silly thing that Jimmy Kimmel just one day out of nowhere just decided at the end of his show, say, uh, you know, apologies to Matt Damon for running out of time. Matt wasn't even supposed to be on the show that night. He just thought it'd be a funny thing to say. And they didn't even really know each other that well. But he just said it over and over. He just said it over and over and over over again. Sincere apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time for him tonight. We'll get him on the air again soon. Apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time. Unfortunately, we are totally out of time. Um, It was a great bit. So then that makes Jimmy and Matt uh, almost uh, kind of a descendant 
of uh, the Fred Allen and Jack Benny feud. They don't know what you're talking about, right? Didn't Jimmy right, Kimmel right. tell you, well, I, I don't know, I've heard about it. He did. That is that is a direct quote from Jimmy Kimmel. I called him and said, Do you, would you be willing to comment on your feud with Matt Damon? And he's like, I think I've read about this, but I don't really know anything about it. <laughs> I want to get you both to talk about the important role of, hey, you can't do that <laughs> in sketch comedy. I came up with this idea to end the chapters with something that I've heard Keegan say many times. This idea of this thing is so ridiculous. Whatever that just happened on the screen is so silly. It could end up being called, I can't believe you went there. So we curated 10 different moments in sketch that are just really silly and ridiculous. Like one of them is from Fry and Laurie where Hugh Laurie is sitting at the bar next to Fry. Mm-hmm. And he just says something like, Fry responds. Now that's a lot of nonsense, and you know. Blackout. That's the whole scene. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you go, what? You can't do that. Tell us about the importance of the blackout in sketch comedies. Is it kind of like turning a page? It is kind of like turning a page. That's a really good way of putting it. I think that they're there to change the pace of a comedy review. That's very often where you'll find the blackout is in either a burlesque show or a comedy review where there's longer scenes and then maybe some kind of stand-up performance and then a song. And then all of a sudden the blackout is a short dramatized joke. So it's usually a sketch that only lasts for about 30 seconds, if not less. And it helps keep the audience on their toes. And it is. It's a bit of a page turner. And they use it in burlesque and they use it on laughing. Like when someone would open a window, say a bitter joke or talk to someone else and then shut the window, right? Mm-hmm. Shut the, yep. Shut yep. the yep. door like on they did, someone. Yeah. They, they, they utilize the blackout really well on laughing. Goldie! His great grandfather is sitting there. And- we still use it today. In, fa- in fact, we see it a lot today. The blackout is very prevalent on TikTok uh, when you see small little comedic bits. So it's something, again, another piece of, uh, another kind of technique of comedy that's endured through the times. Would, the, would that George Burns and Gracie Allen, is that a blackout or is it too long? No, that's a blackout. Do you, want, do you, want, like a, it, do you want to hear a blackout? We could give yeah, you a little, a little blackout sure, yeah. and give Keegan an opportunity to uh, work on his George Burns impression. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Here we go. Do you like to love? Mm, no. Like to kiss? Mm, no. Well, then what do you like? Lamb chops. Lamb chops. <laughs> Could you eat two big lamb chops alone? Alone? No, not alone. But with potatoes, I could. <laughs> blackout. I think does someone have to say, and blackout. <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I vowed to myself not to ask you what makes something funny, but let me work it in in another way. What makes something not funny? What makes a bit fall flat? What makes a bit fall flat? Sometimes I, w- one element would be a, a lack of commitment. So I think one thing that you have to do is you must commit to the bit. And that is something that very often has to be an ingredient of making things funny. And another thing is if a person stays at the same level and they don't heighten or explore the concept that they're talking about, then the comedy stays in one place and doesn't go anywhere. And if it doesn't go anywhere, you don't get more laughs. I guess something that's a really, really long setup 
that doesn't have the the balance like if you made some sort of graph of this is how long the setup is the punchline better be good like it better balance the setup time that there there are some people who take pride in like telling a 10 minute joke and then the punchline just doesn't work that's rough there is comedy jail which is different than pun jail right yes that's different than pun every, jail every now yeah. and then keegan Keegan will warn me that that whatever pun I've put out there is pretty close to getting some kind of ticket. <laughs> yes, I'm just giving you a warning right now. Get a warning. I'm giving you a Thank warning you, right officer. now, but yes, but you, you may officer. get a ticket later if, you, if another <laughs> if pun you like that, that comes out. Yeah. Um, Mel Brooks tells you in this book he couldn't make blazing saddles today. Do you agree? And is that a loss? It's funny. He actually goes on to say that he probably couldn't have made it back then had he not had Final Cut. Even back then, for his director deal, he was given Final Cut, which for people listening means that whatever version that he edits and puts together of this movie is the version they have to distribute. And if the studio was in charge of cutting the movie, it would have been a very, very different movie even back then. Well, what about the general proposition? Have we become hypersensitive. Um, I, I think one of the things that Keegan and I have spent a lot of time working on and, um, and actually fighting for on different projects is that we try to use comedy to be inclusive and uplift. And I think a lot of times, especially now, people sometimes use comedy to be mean. Not to get too heady, but it's what's the consciousness behind where the joke is coming from? Is it coming from trying to bring joy or is it coming from trying to get people to laugh because they're uncomfortable? But there is a way to make fun where you're not punching down. That consciousness piece is, is well said, Elle. There are a number of performers in the, in the book who tell you one way or another, comedy saved me. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you relate to that. I think that comedy is for people, whether they be in the business, the industry itself, or just in regular life. I think it's interesting that comedy is a salve for the soul, that um, laughter really is a healing element that we have uh, in the human condition. And um, that's kind of how I respond to that. I happen to be Jewish, and I grew up in a house where people told jokes and had hard jokes and and it was just part of our family and our culture. And I think it also is a way of dealing with some challenging times. There certainly are, are plenty of jokes and tough situations to help uh, bring some, some levity and joy. Keegan-Michael Key and L. Key, their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having us, Scott. This was Thank wonderful. You. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Next at 10, it's Weekend Edition with further coverage of the deadly Israel-Hamas confrontation. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. There's war in the Middle East today. Hamas and Israel will have the latest. Also this hour, Ron Elvin on the week in politics. Germany's far right rises in the polls. NPR's Ruth Sherlock aboard a boat with migrants trying to make it across the seas to Europe. The Doctors Without Borders staffer tells them. The first thing I want to communicate to you is that we will not go back to Libya, okay? And Joan Baez on a new documentary about her lifetimes and personal struggles. But first, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, October 7th, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared on television today with an announcement. He's saying, citizens of Israel, we are at war. He spoke after the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched an unprecedented attack over Israel's southern border from Gaza in the early hours of the morning. Israeli National Rescue Services say at least 40 people have died. The Gaza Health Ministry says 198 Palestinians were killed in today's violence. Most of them were militants. Another 1,600 Palestinians were wounded. NPR's Aya Petrawi has more. The region is on edge, but there are calls for calm and restraint. Egypt, which borders Gaza and has been a mediator in past wars, says its foreign minister is already working the phones to try to stop the escalation. Saudi Arabia, which is in serious negotiations with Washington to formalize ties with Israel, also called for restraint. But Saudi Arabia also said it's been warning of the dangers of a, quote, explosive situation and the consequences of continued Israeli occupation. Calls for restraint were echoed by the Turkish president. The Iran-backed Hezbollah group of Lebanon, however, congratulated the Palestinian factions involved and said it's a message to countries seeking to normalize ties with Israel that the Palestinian cause remains alive. Ayel Batrawi, NPR News. 
The White House National Security Council issued a statement that the U.S. unequivocally condemns the attacks by Hamas against Israeli citizens. Similar statements were issued by the European Union and the British Foreign Ministry. A White House official says the president has been briefed on what it called the appalling Hamas terrorist attacks and will continue to receive updates. The Democratic National Committee is wrapping up three days of meetings in St. Louis about next year's elections. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum has more on the story. Polls have shown that Biden is neck and neck with former President Donald Trump in 2024. But during the DNC fall meeting in St. Louis, Vice President Kamala Harris said she believes voters appreciate the administration's job creation and environmental record. What we are doing is popular with the American people. DNC Chairman Jamie Harrison says party leaders are trying to help Democrats campaign operations now that connect with voters throughout 2024. One asset that we have that we can't get back, we can't raise more of is time. In addition to defending the presidency next year, Democrats are also fighting to maintain a slim majority in the U.S. Senate. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. The strike against the big three Detroit automakers has entered its fourth week. The union decided not to expand the strike yesterday after reporting progress in talks with General Motors. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Lesley University in Cambridge is laying off faculty and also cutting academic programs to reduce expenses. A Lesley spokesperson would not share the number of people facing layoffs, but the Boston Globe reports they could affect at least two dozen people or 15 percent of the university's core faculty members. Lesley decided to eliminate the political science, global studies, and sociology programs, along with the graduate photography program. The university's president blames the budget shortfalls on declining enrollment and tuition revenue. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says this week's historic ouster of Republican Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House will have a definite impact on business in Congress. Presley told WBUR's Radio Boston that lawmakers are being distracted from preventing a potential government shutdown next month. Next week we'll be spending time electing a new speaker when we could be working on appropriations and passing long-term legislation to fund this government. I mean, again, the people deserve a functioning government. Republicans are unfit. They can't govern. Presley says House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries is qualified to take the speaker's gavel, and she invites Republicans to join Democrats to elect him as the next Speaker of the House. Bishop Fenwick High School in Peabody is filing a legal challenge to ban to a ban on its sports teams playing in postseason tournaments this academic year. The Massachusetts Center Scholastic Athletic Association, which oversees high school sports, instituted the unprecedented ban for violations related to ineligible players on Fenwick's baseball team. Fenwick's motion to vacate, filed in Essex Superior Court, says the student-athletes will suffer irreparable harm if its teams are banned from the postseason. It is 66 degrees in Boston with some showers around today and highs reaching the upper 60s. Showers likely tonight, overnight lows dropping to the low 50s. For your Sunday and your holiday Monday, you can expect sunshine with highs both days in the low 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. 
More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. An early morning attack on Israel by Hamas militants from Gaza has left at least 40 Israelis dead and about 900 Israelis wounded. A Gaza health official says nearly 200 Palestinians, mostly militants, have been killed and more than 1,600 Palestinians wounded. The surprise attack saw Palestinian fighters enter Israel by land, air, and sea, with thousands of rockets being fired toward Israel. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Daniel, thanks for being with us, and tell us what it's like there now. Well, you know, this is something that's been unfolding for about 10 hours now and going, and uh, it's just astonishing scenes. Uh, Both Israelis and Palestinians I've been speaking with have been shocked by what has been happening. It started early this morning. Heavily armed Palestinian militants in Gaza uh, flew across the border on paragliders. They swam through the Mediterranean Sea. They drove over land in pickup trucks through Israel's fortified border fence, and they infiltrated uh, several Israeli military camps and at least five Israeli communities, residential communities near Gaza. Uh, And there are still gun battles going on uh, with Israeli forces as uh, Palestinian militants still hold up there. We have heard some pretty uh, astonishing stories. Israelis uh, speaking to Israeli public broadcasting, talking about being in an outdoor festival, fleeing gunmen by foot and hiding in bushes, militants going door to door, breaking into homes uh, as people are uh, were holed up in their reinforced safe rooms. And uh, in the town of Sderot, NPR spoke to a social worker, Doron Shabti. He was speaking from his reinforced shelter room. He was with his baby. They had run out of milk formula. They had turned off all the lights in the house. And here's what he said. That's the situation. They're all, they're always outside. You know, they're fighting every once in a while, and they suction out, stay food, stay home, not going outside, not, don't, not opening, open the windows, etc. And then at the same time, we've had this other front of, of about 3,000 rockets and counting fired at Israel all day long, uh, also at Jerusalem, at Tel Aviv. Here's what I recorded this morning in Tel Aviv. So Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said, we are at war. Um, Israel has been launching strikes on Gaza. Uh, Netanyahu says the first goal is to retain, regain control of those Israeli communities where militants are, and then to deliver a, a decisive blow on Gaza. But what is really making this astonishing, uh, Scott, for people here is that Hamas has published videos, which NPR is not yet confirmed, of Israeli soldiers and civilians. They are claiming killed and taken hostage alive inside Gaza. Daniel, any indication as to why the attacks are happening now, and and how can it be that Israel was caught by surprise? That that is the big question that's being asked here. I mean, this is a major Israeli intelligence failure and a huge victory for Hamas to be uh, carrying out this attack, a surprise attack on a, on a Jewish holiday today. A lot of comparisons to what happened here 50 years ago on the Yom Kippur holy day when a, when a war broke out, also a surprise attack. Hamas is saying this is a re- in response to Israeli desecration of a 
of a mosque in Jerusalem where uh, Israeli uh, Jewish ultranationalists have been visiting. They're also aiming to release Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. So a lot of questions now, Scott, about how this is going to unfold and how it will impact Israeli domestic politics as well. And concerns about developing into a, into a bigger war. Absolutely. Concerns about a multi-front war opening with other regional actors. Um, and to, to already we've seen anti-government protests in Israel saying they're canceling their protest um, groups tonight. Uh, and, and we're going to have to see how this even impacts Saudi-Israeli efforts at reaching some kind of a normalization, uh, opening diplomatic ties. So th there's a lot going on, and, and now it's a very, very uh, concerning moment here in Israel. Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv, thank you. You're welcome. And now we turn to the U.S. Capitol, a look at a speakership that didn't last long. House Republicans ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy after he enlisted the help of Democrats to pass a 45-day budget. The budget question, of course, comes up again in a few weeks. The leadership question is right now. Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Why don't you pointedly use the word unprecedented? We haven't seen a situation before where the House was unable to do business at all for an indefinite time for the lack of a speaker. Not at least this late in the year. It took nearly a week to get a speaker in January, but this is far more serious. Still, you can't really say it's unprecedented when three of the last four Republican speakers were also forced out by people in their own party. So you remember Paul Ryan retired prematurely after a few years as Speaker because he couldn't deal with the House Freedom Caucus. And that was after John Boehner resigned as Speaker when he was threatened with a motion to vacate the chair. That's the same motion used this week to reject McCarthy. Now, even Speaker Newt Gingrich was forced out by his own Republicans, and that was just four years after he had led them to their first majority in the House in 40 years. So we have to say... The rebellious spirit of this hardcore group of ultra-conservatives has been more or less a constant for a generation now. Also this week, uh, former President Trump's fraud trial uh, proceeded in New York. Um, it's hard not to notice that Mr. Trump treats his visit to the courtroom as uh, campaign stops. Scott, he sees cameras and he sees an opportunity to reach people. Now, of course, this is not really one of his rallies. And thus far, these outbursts or tantrums have mostly led to scoldings and warnings from the judge. But in Trump's mind, this may all be part of a strategy, making himself the victim, the object of persecution. And if he can succeed in creating that image, he can weld his purest hardcore supporters all the more closely to him. An interview surfaced this week in which Donald Trump told a right-wing news site that migrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. I regret having to quote those words because they are racist in a way that recalls Adolf Hitler. Why hasn't every Republican in the country denounced Donald Trump for those words? Why didn't every Republican in the country denounce what happened on January 6th? Or why didn't they denounce Donald Trump for proposing, quote, a total ban on Muslims entering this country, unquote, back in 2015? Some thought that might tank his campaign at the time. Instead, it catapulted him to frontrunner. Polls tell us one reason Republicans don't denounce these events and statements is that half of them simply dismiss any and all negative stories about Trump. They don't believe them. It's fake news and all that. And a fair number of Republicans do not react negatively because they do not disagree with these statements, or at least not entirely. Ron, a stunning jobs report yesterday. The economy added 336,000 jobs. The stock market was giddy. 
And yet polls show a majority of Americans, uh, upset perhaps by the price of gas and housing, are not optimistic about the economy. Does it become politically hard for Democrats to keep trying to convince Americans, no, 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 we're doing a good job on the economy, when so many Americans just don't feel it? Yes, it does. It may become politically impossible. Uh, most people don't really relate so much to the macroeconomic numbers they hear on the news. They relate to their own microeconomics, their household situations. And you can't say the economy is good for them if their income no longer buys as much food for the family or gas for the car. Uh, Biden is right to say that the 300,000 people who got jobs last month may feel pretty good about the economy. But most households already had a job, or more than one, and their perspective is quite different. Democrats may think they can roll out the 2020 campaign and run against Trump, and that may have been enough when Biden was the challenger. It might not be enough after Biden's been in office for four years. NPR's Ron Elvian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. I have some important information. The average American... Oh, wait. New notification, CNN, something about Taylor and Travis. Hmm. And our dog food. Ha-ha, <laughs> for delivery. Woo. Ah, oh, I can still meet my activity goal if I take a brisk 26-minute walk. The average American reportedly gets about 70 smartphone notifications a day. According to a new study from Common Sense Media, the number is far higher for teenagers whose phones ding and vibrate with hundreds or even thousands of daily alerts. The simple ping of a notification is enough to pull our attention elsewhere, Kosta Kushlev, a behavioral scientist at Georgetown University, told us. Even if we don't check them, this can have obvious effects on productivity and stress, but also our own well-being and of those around us. I doubted those figures until I scrolled through my own home screen. I get push alerts from news sites, municipalities, delivery services, political figures, co-workers, scammers, and various purveyors of soap, socks, and shampoos offering discounts and flash sales. Humans are not good at multitasking, Professor Kushlev reminded us. It takes extra time and effort to switch our attention. We feel more drained and depleted. We get interrupted so many times a day that these effects can add up to meaningful decreases in our well-being and social connection. I'm grateful to get up to the minute pings on the shakeup in Congress or that the Bears have won. I'm eager for messages from our family. But I wonder why the New York Times feels it is urgent to alert me, as they did this week, about the six best men's and women's cashmere sweaters. The promise of instant communication has swelled into information congestion. So many urgent notifications, not many of which are truly urgent, and only a few even interesting. So many hours spent gazing onto the light of a small screen as if it were an oracle, searching for news, gossip, opportunity, and direction while so often being oblivious to the world all around us. Hey, my cashmere sweater's here. Ding! And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018. Don't miss Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at 2 this afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, 
Proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. Comcast Business. Providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. And the Music Emporium. Purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Join us for a special culinary evening at City Space. James Beard-nominated chef Yaya Noor takes the stage Wednesday, October 18th to discuss Somali food, halal cooking, and his hit restaurant in East Boston. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Gaza militants attacked Israel early this morning, launching thousands of rockets and infiltrating Israeli communities. Emergency officials say at least 44 Israelis have been killed. The Gaza Health Ministry says 198 Palestinians were killed. The death toll continues to rise in northeastern India after monsoon rains caused a lake to overflow its banks yesterday. Officials say at least 44 people have died. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer arrived in China today. He's leading a bipartisan congressional delegation to Asia. The group is to meet with government and business leaders in South Korea and Japan as well. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The strike of auto workers against the big three automakers is in its fourth week. There is no deal. There has been a major breakthrough. NPR's Andrea Hsu and Danielle Kay are covering the strike. Thank you both for joining us. Hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. Andrea, what's this development? Well, it has to do with electric vehicle battery plants. So one of the union's biggest concerns is how many jobs are going to be lost in this transition to EVs. The UAW has one of these battery jobs to be union jobs, and that seemed like a non-starter with the auto companies. It wasn't clear that they'd even agree to discuss that in these talks. But yesterday, Sean Fain, the president of the United Auto Workers Union, announced that GM has now agreed to include their EV battery plants in the national agreement, meaning it seems like there will be union jobs in those plants. We've been told for months that this is impossible, and now we've called their bluff. Now, Scott, we still haven't heard the details of what GM has agreed to. In fact, GM wouldn't comment on it at all, but it does appear to be a significant win for the union. And because of this, Fain did not expand the strike against GM this week. In fact, he didn't expand the strike against any of the automakers, citing other gains. And Danielle, based on what you've learned, how uh, how long can the automakers go on without an agreement? 
Yeah, well, it all depends on what the UAW does next. I've been talking to auto industry analysts about this, and they say at the current pace of the strike, the companies have enough inventory to get them through several months of a strike before taking a huge hit to their business. But that's all with a big caveat. It's assuming the UAW doesn't target plants that make large SUVs and full-size pickup trucks. Those are the most profitable parts of the automaker's business. The union hasn't done this yet, but Sean Fain said just yesterday that it's something the union is still willing to do. The companies are clearly desperate to avoid that kind of painful expansion. I mean, just this week, the union threatened to go on strike at a GM assembly plant in Arlington, Texas, that builds full-size SUVs. And according to Fain, that threat is what pressured GM to make the breakthrough EV concession Andrea just mentioned. And how are auto workers doing based on your reporting? Well, the UAW is prepared for a long fight. It had roughly $825 million in its strike fund when the walkout started last month. It uses that fund to pay striking workers and workers laid off because of the strike. They're all getting $500 a week. So all that's to say, at the moment, the fund is being depleted by several million dollars per week. But for most workers, strike pay is just roughly 40 percent of their usual weekly wages. So a lot of workers are going to feel the pinch if the strike goes on for a while longer. Here's Brian Stinnett. He works at a Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio. I can last until they come up with a fair agreement, I guess. Andrea, you were in Michigan and Ohio. You spoke with workers on the picket line. What did they tell you? Yeah, well, they said they are finding ways to get by by not eating out, by watching what they buy. Um, Here's Jim Cooper, who works at that same Jeep plant. It's tough. It's a lot different than what I normally make, and I'm from a single-income household with four kids. And Scott, he's got a 10-year-old and three teenagers, and he says they eat quite a bit, especially one who's a runner. He told me he actually put in applications this week at some big box stores just to try to make a little extra money to support his family. But he's also really proud to be on the picket line, fighting not just for himself, but for the cause. It'll be worth it once we get through this. The security and the benefits in the future, like like Sean Fain said, short-term pain for long-term benefit. That's what we're looking at. Andrea, sounds like he has confidence in uh, Sean Fain's leadership. Uh, same with other workers? Yeah, actually. Um, in Toledo, I also met Donya Ferdinandson, who builds transmissions for GM for the Chevy Silverado and other trucks. She told me she's behind Fain 110%. Whatever he does, I believe in him. I think this plan is very well thought out. I'm sure they thought of every direction, what the the big three can do, will do, might do. They thought all that out. And, you know, listening to Fane, you can see why he's so popular among the rank and file. He showed up on Facebook Live yesterday wearing this T-shirt that said, eat the rich. He loves playing up class politics. He straight up said these billionaire executives, they think we are dumb. They look at me and they see some redneck from Indiana. But, you know, Scott, he said they don't know us. We may be foul mouthed but we're strategic. We may get fired up, but we're disciplined. And we may get rowdy, but we're organized. And that organization, the discipline, the strategy, it's becoming more and more apparent how effective that's all been the longer this strike goes on. NPR's Andrea Shu and NPR's Danielle Kay, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. The far-right political party in Germany that is under domestic surveillance for the threat it poses to that country's democracy now has higher poll numbers than each of the three parties in government. And Pierre's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz has more. 
It's election season in Bavaria, where voters, many emerging from Oktoberfest hangovers, will choose state representatives this weekend. And for Alice Weidel, the co-chair of the Alternative for Deutschland Party, or AFD, German traditions like Oktoberfest are under threat from a political elite which she says looks down on the rest of us. They want to destroy our homeland, she told voters at a campaign event last month. They want to ban our pork knuckle, our bratwurst, our schnitzel. Well, I'll promise you one thing, they will not take away my schnitzel. As it turns out, the AFD has more serious priorities beyond protecting schnitzel. And that's what's worrying Germany's liberal government. In a radio interview a couple weeks ago, Weidel went beyond German cuisine. Weidel, who is married to a woman with whom she has children, complained to a public broadcaster about rainbow flags. It's promoting a trans pop culture of a minority, and it raises concerns about how we protect our children from all this gender rubbish in school, she said whether it's Germany's LBGTQ community, Muslims, or migrants, Vital and her AFD party have for years targeted minorities with brash and threatening language. So much so that two years ago, Germany's Office for the Protection of the Constitution put the entire party under domestic surveillance, considering it a threat to the country's democracy. None of this seems to bother 22% of Germans, though. That's the share of voters who would elect the AFD if the election were held tomorrow, according to the latest poll. The party's popularity eclipses that of each of the three parties currently governing Germany. If the people don't believe that the future will be better than the present times, then uh, they look for different parties. Political scientist Wolfgang Merkel of Berlin's Humboldt University says German voters fear their country is on the decline. The latest frustration was a government bill to change how homes are heated. Many Germans feared they'd have to pay for expensive heat pumps. After a public outcry that the AFD joined, the bill failed, and the AFD's popularity skyrocketed. Merkel says the party's popularity is troubling because its rhetoric mirrors the agenda of similar populist movements in Poland and Hungary, where democratic norms have eroded. This is something which threatens in the longer run also the democratic culture of this country and the democratic style of governance. But in order to be in position to change how Germany governs, the AFD would need to be in a position to govern. AFD members currently hold only two leadership posts at local levels. Nationally, other parties have refused to form coalitions with the AFD, calling this pact a firewall. The AFD strategy is to scratch away at that firewall to get to the other parties. Gareth Joswig covers the AFD for Die Tageszeitung, one of Germany's biggest newspapers. He says so far the AFD strategy has not succeeded, but he says many observers are worried the right-center party of former Chancellor Angela Merkel, the CDU, will be tempted to break that firewall. If a national election were to be held soon, the two parties would have the numbers to form a coalition government. This is an acid test for the CDU, which is stuck in a sense because it's lost so many voters to the AFD and because some people inside the CDU are prepared to work with the AFD. Josvig believes the firewall will hold, but political scientist Wolfgang Merkel says the AFD often argues it's not needed. 
look at Austria, look at France, look even at countries like Sweden or Norway, which are the best democracies we have on the globe. There were uh, right-wing populists in government and democracy is not very much different from your countries. Merkel says that since World War II, Germany has managed to keep right-wing populists out of its government because of the humiliation brought on by what he calls the barbarian years of the Nazi machine. But with a wave of populism spreading through Europe, it's not clear whether Germany can keep the AFD out. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. European leaders continue to disagree over how and whether to accept the arrival of migrants who cross the Mediterranean in smugglers' boats. Meanwhile, these victims of war, persecution, and climate change continue to perish at sea. The charity Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, runs search and rescue operations. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is with them on the ship GeoBarents. Ruth, thank you for being with us, and tell us what it's like to, to see this. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's a really intense experience, to be honest. Yesterday morning at about two in the morning, we got this radio call and MSF rescuers had spotted a wooden boat just a few hundred feet from our ship. Uh, the migrants were using lights on their phones because that's all they had with them to attract attention. So the rescue team headed out in these rubber dinghies and take a listen to the first moments when they met up with the migrant boat. So you can hear that the people on board here are trying to tell the MSF team there's a baby on board they should save first. This small wooden vessel, you know, it had 167 people crowded into it. That's including some women, some kids. And the rescuers managed to get everybody back to the geobarrants. And there I watched the staff, doctors and others hand out blankets and food, but also smiles and hugs. And it was quite emotional because I think these could be the first moments of kindness these people have received in weeks or months of their journey trying to reach Europe. Ruth, what can you tell us about where these people are from and, and what they've lived through? Well, most of the people that MSF rescued this time were from Syria, but there's also people from Egypt, Bangladesh, Sudan. And most of these people have been making a journey that has been months long and torturous to get this far. So there were terrible stories. People have been abused when they reached Libya, which is where they departed from. One man showed me the scars, which he had all over his body from where he says he was tortured in a detention center. There's rape and enslavement of migrants. Uh, these stories are really common. So hear the relief of the people on board when this MSF staff member promises them that that part of their ordeal is over. The first thing I want to communicate to you is that we will not go back to Libya, okay? Oh, you, uh, you hear the relief. Um, yet the political arguments over migration uh, affect these rescues more and more, don't they? Do you see evidence of that? We do. And, you know, yesterday, despite these rescues, uh, there was a darker mood at the end of the day on board because the MSF team became aware of more distress calls from three other boats. That's 130 people or so that needed help. 
and MSF wanted to respond. They still had the space on board to do so, but they couldn't because of this new Italian maritime law. And it requires ships to return to port immediately after their first rescue. This slashes the time that ships like the Geobarents can spend in these critical parts of the Mediterranean where people need help. And it's almost half the number of people that they can rescue in general. And, you know, if they don't comply with this law, though, they'll be fined and the ship, the Geobarents and others, other charity ships can be impounded for months. So in this case, the MSF team appealed to the Italian authorities to be allowed to change course, but their request was denied. And so... The search and rescue leaders were really downcast and sickened because it meant they were forced to leave the area where they knew people needed help. And Pierre's Ruth Sherlock aboard the Geo Barons in the Mediterranean. Ruth, thank you so much. Thank you. We will keep you updated throughout the day on the attack launched on Israel by Palestinian Hamas militants. You can listen for these updates on your local NPR station or live on npr.org. You are listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. And now, a new Apple. Not an Apple product or device, an actual Apple you can hold in your hand and gobble, which is not recommended for the new iPhone. David Bedford is an apple breeder at the University of Minnesota, where the horticultural department has been breeding apples, including the Honeycrisp, for more than a century. They've now announced their 29th varietal. It is called Kudos. Kudos to you, Mr. Bedford. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. Great pleasure to be with you and uh, fun to talk about apples always for me. What's it taste like? Oh, boy, where do I start? Don't well, tell me chicken, okay? <laughs> no, I, I will not do that. Um, half of its parentage is Honeycrisp. What we've captured there is the texture of Honeycrisp, that sort of explosive crispness uh, that just breaks in your mouth. And uh, I always say a good Honeycrisp apple, you should almost have to eat hanging over a sink. You know, it's just that juicy. And then we used another Minnesota variety named Zestar as the other parent. And Zestar has a little more full, robust flavor, I guess, than Honeycrisp. And, you know, when it's fully ripe, we almost get a little bit of a tropical flavor from it. Parents, is that how you think of apples? We do. We do. Yeah. Just like uh, our, our, our own children. And <laughs> as, in, as with our own children, we have the best of hopes for them when we make these crosses uh, for, for new varieties. But uh, the percentage of success is a bit lower with apples than I think with children, probably. Mm. How do you make a new apple? Well, it's basic sexual propagation, just like with animals and people. Uh, It's basically choosing two parents. And then uh, in the case of apples, we cover the flowers of the parent that we're going to use as the female parent. We cover those flowers so that when they open in the spring, the bees won't do their job. We want to put our pollen on and, and not their pollen. Uh, We'll take those bags off just for a few minutes uh, when the flowers are open. We'll put our pollen on and the bags go back on. And if all goes well, that fertilization that we've done will turn into apples. And in those apples will be the seeds that will be the hybrid between the two parents. Mm. Totally personal question. Do you you eat apples at home? (laughs) 
Well, uh, you just yes. say I had that at the office. Yeah, yeah not not during the apple season. Uh, in the peak of the season, we have to taste somewhere around the neighborhood of 500 apples a day. When I come home, uh, no more apples needed for sure. But the rest of the season, yes, yeah, I still am a uh, confirmed lifelong apple eater. Can people get kudos all over the country now, or do we have to wait? Unfortunately, no. I can't remember if I mentioned that it's been 22 years since we did the original breeding. So now we're at the first stage of release. And that means that the trees are being planted by the commercial orchards. So that will be about three to four years before they'll have fruit on those trees and then the consumers can buy them. But unfortunately, we're just a little ahead of the curve for the actual tasting. That's a long gestation period, isn't it? <laughs> the apple breeding game is, is more of a marathon than a sprint. You can spend a lifetime uh, almost developing an apple. And then even after the apple is developed and released, uh, it's quite commonly another 10 to 15 years before it becomes well-known in the marketplace. So uh, we have to plan ahead, and uh, <laughs> hopefully we can predict what the public will like in the future. And I think with Honeycrisp, uh, it worked. David Bidford, apple breeder at the University of Minnesota, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Israel and Hamas say they are now at war. Palestinian militants launched a surprise assault on Israel this morning by land, air, and sea. Israel responded with airstrikes on Gazan cities. Israeli officials say at least 40 Israelis have, have been killed. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza says 198 Palestinians have been killed. Stay with WBUR for updates on this story throughout the day. Bishop Fenwick High School in Peabody is filing a legal challenge to a complete ban on its teams playing in postseason tournaments this academic year. The Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association, which oversees high school sports, instituted the unprecedented ban in response to violations related to ineligible players on Fenwick's baseball team. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vermont Tourism. Trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream, very much open. And McLean Hospital, for expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at mcleanhospital.org. Hi, I'm Margaret Lowe, CEO of WBUR, here with a big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our fundraiser. We needed you to step up in a big way, and boy, did you. Fundraising has been really tough across the country, but once again, WBUR listeners rose to the challenge. We are blown away by your support. Thank you for believing. Thank you for giving. If you didn't get a chance to give and you'd still like to, go to WBUR.org and click the Donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. 
and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Stephen Sanchez is a 20-year-old with an old soul. There must be something about her. On his debut album, Angel Face, Stephen Sanchez imagines a vintage world in which a troubadour falls in love with the girlfriend of a mob boss. She was kinder to me than most girls would ever be. I'm over the moon. Stephen Sanchez joins us now from New York. How are you? Really well. How are you? Fine, thank you. And tell us this story about this wonderful voice encountering Evangeline and what they see in each other. So the troubadour Sanchez, he's this famous crooner whose career launches in 1958 after playing on the Connie Co show uh, with his band, The Mooncrests. And they skyrocket to fame over years and they're touring. And I mean, it's such a, a wild story of their just musical success, which then turns into this singular career, the troubadour Sanchez, you know, because of his mighty voice that's leading the charge. Mm-hmm. Six years into his career, now it's 1964, he lands a residency at this club called The Angel, which is owned by a club owner named Hunter. To the troubadour's knowledge, he does not know that Hunter is a mob boss who is dating Evangeline, whom the troubadour meets at the Angel Club when he first arrives there. And Evangeline is waiting for Hunter to arrive at the Angel Club. And so the two meet, uh, the troubadour and Evangeline, and their love is next to immediate. Troubadour is tired of all the fame and the glory. Like he wants to run from that. And for Evangeline, she doesn't want this life of crime and of fear, but she wants one of love and of gentleness. It must be more than I need you. More than I love you. Sounds like you've learned a lot about love. I've learned more and more recently that grace is kind of the driving force that allows forgiveness and understanding. And I think this record for me is is, is all of that. It's all deep-rooted passion of, of longing and wanting to understand and be understood and, and all of its faults being seen but like not shied away from but embraced. Gosh, what a voice you have. You hear people make a lot of comparisons to Elvis Presley and Sam Cooke? There's obviously been a lot of artists, you know, before me who love that music and and have released it in their own way. And there's definitely so much to be said, you know, about them maybe sounding like Elvis or Sam Cooke. But this is my interpretation of, like, what it would be like for me if I was back in the 50s and 60s, you know, singing and how I would sing. And so... I'm definitely uh, trying to stay in a a lane of my own for sure, but uh, it's not bad company at all to be uh, compared in any way. It's really nice. I want to play a little bit uh, about the story of your characters as reflected in this uh, in the song "Shake."
what led you to create these characters and tell a story through them? Whereas, understandably, so many young artists write songs and sing about, well, themselves. I wrote previously about moments in my life and things that I, I'd felt, and a lot of the songs and, and stories I was writing in those songs about my personal life, you know, I was kind of processing that very quickly, and so I felt a bit of a disconnect when it actually came down to playing them live, because it was like, wow, like, I've spent all this time, you know, recording this music and writing this music, and sitting in this story and now it's you know six months later and i'm actually okay and there's definitely something to be said to reflect back on, on where you've been but i think that i tend to have a hard time connecting with things that have happened in my life because you just move on and uh i think for me with this story like to create characters and kind of be the third person watching this story unfold i think that i can connect with that more because it leaves more room to play and be playful, and I think with this music, it just makes it more exciting. I don't want to reveal too much about this story, but let's just say it's ill-fated. we can take into our own lives from um, this love story? I don't feel like a teacher just yet. <laughs> I feel like a constant student mm -hmm. all the time. So I, I think for me to create a record like this, you know, it definitely is not for the purpose of telling people what to do with it, but more like necessarily that I think it allows like a vulnerable space for people to be caught in a feeling long enough to actually chase it and do something with it. And I, I think that that's kind of the desire for people. They'd feel a sense of freedom to be caught in that feeling, in that, uh, that chase, that pursuit that might feel hopeless or hopeful or the most peaceful thing ever. You know, what I've, I've learned in, in loving someone is that life gets a hold of them before you do. And the moment you meet them, they, they are bringing in everything that they have experienced, that they have thought, that they have felt. And it's a choice to recognize that and and to uh, choose that every single day. Stephen Sanchez, his new album, Angel Face. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for talking to me. The opening moments of a new documentary film show an artist with one of the most extraordinary voices of all time, working with a vocal coach to get through a farewell tour. How's that feeling? I have to just, to knocking the vibrato out of some of these. Yeah. Gives me a little longer time with them. The film uses that 2018 tour by Joan Baez to also bring us along on a journey through her life in the public eye since she was a teen. Her publicized loves and what do they call them now, uncouplings, and her uncovering of what she calls a kernel in her childhood that she needed to crack. Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, directed by Karen O'Connor, Mira Navasky, and Maeve O'Boyle. Joan Baez herself joins us now from California. Thanks so much for being with us. It's so my pleasure. Thank you. This film is searingly, and I bet at times uncomfortably personal. Why did you want to do it? 
A number of reasons. I wanted to leave an honest legacy of myself. And I trusted Karen O'Connor has been a friend of mine for years. So I knew where to put my trust and I was right in doing so. I think mainly wanting to be honest and straightforward because you know why? Because I've got nothing to lose now. <laughs> mm. As we noted, you, you have been famous since you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Very rarely does it happen that a performer emerges. Seal Bikel. That is a beautiful introduced you. human being as well as a great singer and musician. Such a one is Joan Baez. Newport Folk Festival. <laughs> I'll just sing what I feel like singing. Feels sort of like exploding, so I'll explode. There's film of you in your childhood, your sisters Pauline and Mimi. There you are, vibrant young daughters of a distinguished physicist and devoted mother, happy, smiling. What do the films not show? Well, they show that side that's real as well. But what I uncovered after so many years of this mysterious interruptions in my life of anxiety, panic attacks, etc., um, I've been to therapists for years who helped me live with it and get around it and make it a little better. And then I thought, you know, this is something that it's there's something in there I need to get to. And and my sister Mimi just called one day and said, you know, I think something terrible happened in our childhood. You want to look into it the way I will in therapy. And uh, eventually I said yes. And we both discovered some very deep trauma from childhood and we were, our bodies and brains were reacting to that our whole lives without our knowing it because it was all unconscious, subconscious. I don't want to be oblique about this, inappropriate behavior, abuse. Yeah, abuse, trauma. Mm -hmm. Your father said it never happened. Yeah, and I believe with all my heart that he and my mom have no memory of it at all. The mind is an extraordinary thing to blocking something out if you really don't want to deal with it. I mean, I had blocked it out for 50 years. And then the journey was really quite something. And how do you forgive? And how do you, you know, how much do you believe? How much do you blame other people? And all of this is an attempt to get better so that I'll have a life, you know, a a really whole life rather than fragmented. And the fragments came as, you know, I was diagnosed with multiple personalities. And um, so through them is each little entity inside you holds memory or memories. When they're allowed to come up to consciousness or to come up for air, they really do explain to you uh, what their trauma was, which means it was mine, um, and they carried it for me. There's a phrase that stayed with me, and forgive me if I get it as a paraphrase, but you say you weren't very good at one-on-one relationships, but very good at one on <laughs> 2,000. Trying to deal with intimacy and my incapability of really having an intimate relation with somebody for more than a week, you know? (laughs) Um, And I always thought that I could and I would, and this time it would be better, and this time I would 
react to somebody positively for a long, long time, and, and I couldn't. And I mean, it's clearer now that when your trust is is blasted apart when you're little, it's very difficult to learn to trust later in life. Safe enough behind the guitar, singing with 2,000 people, very comfortable. I mean, not really intimate, so I'm kind of kidding, but it was way easier for me than it was trying to, to have something real with another person. I tell you what I'll do. I'll do Bobby Dylan singing Joan Baez, okay? Okay. When is to the kitchen gone? Can I ask about Bob Dylan? I'm not going to beat around the bush. Sure, you can. <laughs> All right. So you, see, um, you ask whatever you want, yeah. I think probably Dylan broke my heart because it was so shattering. And it having been such a huge thing, you know, it was huge. The music was huge, the politics, the, you know, the closeness when we had it. Um, I think that's fair enough to say. You were both young early in your careers. I admire, revere Bob Dylan as a genius, but what we mm -hmm. see of him with you, it's just hard to like him. Uh, yeah, you know, for my own self, when I looked at that footage, the first thing I thought was, we still both had our baby fat when all this stuff was going on. We were really young. I don't know what was going on in his mind. Um, and I spent, you know, many, many years being ticked off and resenting and all that stuff. And then you know, one day I was painting his portrait, Dylan as a young boy, young man, and I put his music on and I wept for about 24 hours in gratitude that, that what I did get from him and how extraordinary in those years and the songs. And I have not had one iota of resentment since that little epiphany, happy to say. Joan, may I ask, are you happy now? You know, somebody said the other day, what's the best decade of your life? And I said, this one, bang, like that. Yes, I have a, an, a piece in here that I wouldn't, you know, I couldn't have for decades and has developed over the last few years to be even more so. And, and with that, this massive creativity since I quit touring has come out in every other way. So yes, I am. Quite happy now. Oh, fare thee well, I must be gone and leave you for a while. I have to ask you about one more thing. Sure. There's a, a, an entry you made, I think, in a notebook when you were 13. It mm -hmm. says, someday I intend to be like Gandhi. <laughs> uh, Gandhi, an important figure to you, given your activism, your uh, yeah. commitment to nonviolence. Joan, Mahatma Gandhi, God bless him, couldn't carry a tune. <laughs> he carried his own tune, and millions of people heard it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you one up me there. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I thought I was being so clever. Well, you were. I was just clever, more clever than you were. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <true>. <laughs> oh. 
Joan Baez, though I probably don't need to say that, she is uh, the star of the new documentary. Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Scott. Such a joy to talk to you. And you know you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Proven Winners, with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Don't miss Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at 2 o'clock this afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. And stay with WBUR as we keep you informed about today's deadly developments in the Middle East. Hamas carried out a large-scale surprise attack on Israel. Israel retaliated with airstrikes on Gazan cities. Israel and Hamas now say they are at war. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. And the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic. Now through October 8th, tickets at huntingtontheater.org. Roxane Gay's new collection of essays, opinions, tackles police brutality, celebrity culture, and why Father's Day gifts are so terrible. <laughs> but mostly it's about finding her voice. You don't have to agree. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like me. But I'm entitled as anyone else to share my opinions. That conversation plus the news Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.